It's like Brian said, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark again this morning in two of uh, the, the most high-impact, crazy, I think, paradigm-shifting stories uh, in, in the Gospel of Mark. We'll be in chapter 4, verse 35, through the middle of chapter 5. And uh, you're, you're going to need your Bible for this, so if you, if you don't have a Bible with you, we'd love to put one in your hand. If you'd slip up, slip up a hand, we've got some folks in the back that'll, that'll step down and uh, get you a Bible. And if you, don't have, if you don't have a Bible in your home, we'd love for you just to, to take this home. I mean, it's our, it's our $2.50 gift to you, but the most life-changing $2.50 uh, that, we, that we could offer. Um, like I said, the, the most high impact and what, what, to set you up, these, these chapters or this, uh, these stories, these two stories happen almost immediately after the disciples begin to follow Jesus. Some of the earliest experiences that totally upend their expectation of what kingdom life was all about. That the idea of joining the kingdom of God, following Jesus, those are, those are synonymous. When you follow Jesus, you, you come to be a part of the kingdom of God. Like they had in their mind this paradigm or this expectation of what being with Jesus was going to be like. And almost immediately, Jesus flips the script, upends that expectation, shocks their system by these two major experiences that would reset or reestablish the template of kingdom life, of following Jesus for the rest of their lives. And I think we need that in our culture today. I think we need to have these experiences uh, with them. So before we jump into the text, uh, when I was 18 years old, I flew for the first time. And uh, that flight was going to be, I can't remember, it was, a, it was a long flight, like seven or nine hours, because I was moving to Eastern Europe. And uh, I, was, I was totally excited about flying. You know, you'd hear friends talk about how amazing it is, and the feelings you get, and things you see, all of that kind of stuff. And so on the way to the airport there in Dallas, DFW Airport, uh, in the taxi, my teammates were talking about, this is going to be the most amazing thing ever. You need to sit by the window. Oh, you're going to get the rush of your life, and then there's going to be the clouds, and this is going to be so, so great. What they didn't tell me, though, was that some people get motion sick. They left that out. And they didn't tell me anything about turbulence. That, and that the combination between most those, the percentage of people who get motion sick and turbulence is a destructive I would call it violent combination. So get on the plane. Totally excited. This is going to be, this is going to be amazing. Aside from the rush of I'm moving, moving to Europe. So as an 18-year-old, this is going to be the coolest experience of my life. That's going, to, that's, going to be, that's going to start out with this flight. Get on the plane. Get the butterflies. Sit down. And I can, I can, I can take myself back there. Just the movement of the plane. Before we did anything, I sat down looking out the window, and I'm thinking, I don't think those are butterflies anymore. <laughs> immediately, my brain said, immediately, I recognize this feeling. I think I have the flu. Found out I did not have the flu. I have motion sickness. We start taxiing out. As we're backing up, 
you know, the whole equilibrium and motion, I feel it. And I'm thinking, I don't, I don't know what a vomit bag is, but I need a vomit bag. <laughs> so that thing was clutched like a lady's purse in my fingers as we're backing out. I still have a touch of excitement that's eclipsed by the motion sickness. But then as we're going down the, the runway, there's my friends. Oh, this is going to be so amazing. It's going to jerk you back. I was like, I don't want to be jerked back. I don't want this anymore. I want off the ride. And uh, as soon as we left the runway and are in the air, the pilot comes over the, over the intercom and says, I want to alert everyone uh, that we have uh, rough weather ahead. And, of course, I'm, I've got my head, and I look out the window, and I see dark clouds off in the distance. Said, we have rough weather ahead. I'm going to, he says, get us two clearer skies. Thank goodness. We're turning around, man. <laughs> this, this is going to be great. To my surprise, we didn't turn around, but he heads. You've got, I mean, I'm sure this is we wouldn't have flown into lightning, but it was, those clouds were dark, and he's going toward the clouds, ascending us into the danger. And he's all the while assuring us, just a few more minutes, as the plane is being ripped apart, I can count the bolts that are left, rattling, ascending, more rattling, ascending further. So counterintuitive. I, I don't know what was going through his head, but there we are, complete darkness in, rattling. Wings have now come off of the plane. <laughs> I can't see any of this because my head's in a back. And then out of nowhere, we ascended above the clouds. And they were, as he promised, the smoothest skies. Everybody else had ever experienced. This was the first time for me. Smooth. I still threw up, mind you. I was too afraid during the ascent to, to actually produce anything from uh, my, my innermost parts. But I was absolutely that guy. I was enjoying the smooth skies, but my stomach still needed uh, to evacuate everything that was there. I have to imagine... As I'm reading the Gospels in this early experience of the disciples, that this is what they felt like. All of the excitement and what it was going to be like, their expectation of this new life with, the, with this famous, early, young, famous rabbi that everybody wanted to be around. And, of course, in chapter 3 and early in chapter 4, those uh, expectations were met with exactly what you'd expect. Crowds were following Jesus, surrounding. They got to hear things they'd never heard and see things they had never seen, but they were still on the runway. And as the plane begins to disembark, we have, yes, Chapter 4, verse 35, and then chapter 5. Remind you again, this is early in the disciples' experience. Normally, we don't like to rock people's world and, and throw them for a loop in the church world until later on. It's kind of a bait and switch that we have going on. Everything's going to be wonderful, but we don't tell you about the storm. 
but we don't tell you about the demons and the crazy stuff that you're going to encounter. Now, with that in mind, join me in a reading of Matthew chapter 4, verse 35. On that day, after the crowds and everything, on that day, when evening had come, so sun is set, it's dark, he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the, the sea here. Let us go across the other side. And leaving the crowd, this is, this is an interesting phrase I think we need to dig into just a little bit. They took him with them in the boat, took Jesus with them in the boat just as he was. So Jesus had expended all of his energy with uh, the crowds. He had been a healing and he had been a talking and he had been, he was, I don't know, introvert, extrovert. Jesus was done with people. And I have this picture like they have him like hoisted up under his armpits saying, okay, all right, Jesus, we're going to get you to the boat. There is a picture of the humanity of Jesus in this. We find out later that he is fully divine. And we're not going to go into this whole theology, but Jesus is dog tired. I think that's the theological term. Jesus is dog tired. They took him in the boat just as he was, and there were other boats with him. And a great, I think the NIV says, uh, a great gale, a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat. Notice the expectation. If I'm with Jesus, everything's going to be great and wonderful. Peace be still. This is going to be the most amazing thing ever. Jesus is, we find out, asleep, and a great, great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling up, but he was, Jesus was, in the stern, asleep on a cushion, and they, just very, we're going to add some context to this, and they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? What they really meant, get all theological here. This was not a new experience for the disciples. We know that their previous career was uh, that they were fishermen. So they were well acquainted with boats and storms and winds, but it should raise uh, our attention just a little bit that they were scared and they believed they were perishing. So the fact that the uh, the, the, uh, the disciples who, were, uh, who had had these kinds of experiences before were scared means that this was a major storm. When they came to Jesus, they weren't asking for a Bible lesson. They weren't, when they say, don't you even care, they didn't have this picture that Jesus was able to do anything about the storm. They were very practical and aggravated at this point. So in the midst of a storm, boats filling, the disciples know what to do. Every, everybody grabs a bucket, pours that. Everybody's bucketing out the water with perspiration, probably some language, a little bit of screaming. They're terrified, but very practically speaking, everybody, it's all hands on deck, and all of a sudden they realize somebody's taking roll. Like somebody puts their bucket down and is like, I'm counting one dude missing, they go and confront Jesus. I have to imagine uh, that later on when they realize that this is the master of the universe, the Lord of lords, uh, that whoever it was that got in Jesus's face, like there's some giggling, like you remember when you got in God's face <laughs> and told him to, get, to grab a bucket? <laughs> Don't you even care? 
Practically speaking, let's get to work. Verse 39. And the funny thing, it says that he awoke. So they're yelling at him, and he's not even fully awake yet, which is annoying on both sides. He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. Notice how that's phrased and what the disciples must have been thinking. He started talking to the elements. This should take you all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. So this is a very theological uh, depiction of what's going on. But in their minds as they're watching this, he does not grab a bucket, mind you. He stands at the front of the boat, like Leonardo DiCaprio, without a bucket, and says, speaks, hey, yo, wind, hey, yo, waves, very familiarly. And the disciples said, what, listen, what have we gotten ourselves into? Dude's asleep. Now he's talking to the wind. There's some insanity that's going on here. As he speaks, who, they, of course, the question that they end up asking is, who is this, after the storms are calmed, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Once again, this takes us back to Genesis when God spoke the world into existence. And at his word, the sun comes in, the, the stars are aligned, the vegetation fills the earth, and then people come into being. At his word, who is this, who is he, that even the winds and the waves will have a conversation with him? Who is he? Well, what we learn, what we see with Jesus, of all the things, all the lessons we could derive, what we see with Jesus is that he is completely comfortable in the midst of the storm. We're going to unpack that here in just a second. The normal human reaction to a storm is not to get in the storm, first of all, right? I'll do everything possible because smart people don't get in bad situations. Like my instinct is, not, is not to, either not to be there or to go in full survival fetal mode because storms are bad. But if you look at Jesus, like he's got a cushion, by the way. The guy brought a pillow. It's very practical. He's asleep yawning, unaffected by the storm. Jesus is at home in the midst of the storm. That should alert us to something. That, should, that really should change our expectation of what being with Jesus is going to be like. I, want, I don't want to be in storms. He's comfortable in the storm. So one of my favorite books over uh, the past few years, and one that if we sit down and uh, over coffee, I'll end up quoting out of this book because it was just such a fun, hard, great read. It's called Leadership Pain. Leadership Pain. And Leadership Pain posits, pardon me, my nose has been dripping all morning. Flowers. Leadership Pain posits that most people, the greater percentage of human beings, have one of two responses to stress and pain. One is the flight. They, they, when, when stuff is happening, when pain emerges, they want out, so they run away. Or, once again, they go fetal, they freeze, 
and spend all of their energy just trying to wish it away. Close your eyes. The storm's going to be over. Have the vomit, uh, the, the bag to your mouth and just, I just want it. I, let me know. Let me know when everything is over. But that the successful people in our world, the CEOs, the high-capacity high leaders who we consider successful, have, in the smaller percentage of people, have a different response to pain, challenge, stress, however you would define that. Their response is that they embrace pain. He has this phrase that I choke up when I think about it. He says, I've, th through the years, I just embrace, he personifies pain, says, may I make friends with pain. So that when, when st I've been through, he says, I've been through, I've, I've, I've gone through difficulty, gone through pain, so that when, when pain comes walking in through my door, when something starts happening that I know is going to be a painful day, week, season of my life, I, I say the words, well, hello, old friend. I guess we're going to be walking together for a while. I can't wait to find what great things you're going to teach me. He goes on, says, you know the difference between the person who runs a marathon and the person who is a couch potato? You know the difference between those two people are? One's crazy and one's not. <laughs> the guy or gal who runs a marathon has accepted, I'm about to blow your mind, who runs a marathon has accepted pain as an ordinary part of life. Couch potato does everything they can to eliminate pain from their life. And because of that, one is a person of excitement and achievement and success. Look, for those of you who've, who've run or hobbled through a marathon, and Brian recently did it, even if you don't win, you win because you're that you're that person. <laughs> you crawled a marathon. How amazing. <laughs> you get a t-shirt. They experience the invigoration of the adventure because their template for life is not the elimination of pain, but to make friends with their pain. Because like the airplane, Only on the other side of the storm. Got to go through it to get it. And so we find with Jesus, we find with Jesus that in the midst of the storm, some things happened that without the storm never could have been realized. The question that they ask, who is this, could not and would not have been asked had it not been for the storm. When Jesus calms the, the winds and the waves, that emerges, so I would say, we would never realize who Jesus is weren't it for 
the chaos for the storms and the challenges of our life. That when Jesus shows up, he's defined by his ability to do things within the storm, the storms of our lives. He's defined by those things in a way uh, that brings him off of the pages of the Bible. And what I would say moves him from an hypothetical Lord and Savior to a real Lord and Savior in my life. Who is this? I've seen him. I've experienced him. He does something in the midst of the, that without that, Jesus is just a history lesson. We experience, secondly, the full power of God that often, because we spend so much of our time trying to abate the storm, wish the storm away, remove ourselves from the storm, we have a muted picture, a lessened picture of the true power of God in our lives. It's only when he does what only he can do that we're able to say God is truly powerful. Once again, moving from the hypothetical to the real. What does Jesus say to the disciples? You should have more faith. He says they don't have faith. I would say they don't have real faith. And often with a lot of people, because we retract ourselves, we move ourselves, we do everything we can, which say our, our faith is still on the couch and he's calling us to run a marathon. Moving up from abstract, I read about God is so, this is true, let's speak this to yourself, God is so powerful, God can do, Jesus can do anything. All things are possible through God. But if we don't have the stories of how God with us did what only he can do, our faith is abstract, it's hypothetical until we gird ourselves and ride into the storm, in it, through it, and we can point on the calendar to that is when Jesus stood up and, oh my gracious, he extended his hand and he did it. Only then. Does our faith materialize into something real? And it's from that point that I, I guarantee you the disciples never experienced a storm the same way again. Why? They put their finger on a calendar and say, what he did then, he can do now. And normally we think of faith as kind of abstract, faith is a feeling. Faith, faith, in their case, is not a feeling. Faith is a finger on a calendar. It's material. And the third thing I would say is that in the storm, the promises of God were confirmed. God promises, never leave me or forsake me. God promises to take care of me. God says, I'm not going to let anything happen to you. All the promises, you can list the promises out. But until God keeps his promise, once again, it's abstract and it's hypothetical. And our faith is on a page and it's in a history book, not on our calendar. Until God keeps the promise, even our relationship with him 
kind of dwells in this ethereal, abstract universe. But all of a sudden, my soul changes when God takes care of me, when I need him the most. That is not all that, the theology, ooh, cool sermon. That's not how the disciples responded, by the way. Storm's done. They ask the question, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Jesus then rebukes them. You still have no faith. It's like, we've been with you for five minutes. He's kind of hard on them. And then in verse 41, and they were filled with great fear. They're... Their expectation is upended. They thought this was going to be peace, joy, love, and happiness. They thought, look, I had a lot of problems before. This is what we'll tell people in the church. We had a lot of problems before, but if you'll follow Jesus, everything is going to be peace and prosperity. And all of a sudden, that's upended. And they realize what's scarier than a storm? The guy who talks to a storm and it obeys. So get the picture. The disciples then have moved from, they put their buckets down because they don't need them anymore. Jesus, I just I wish I had a chair. Jesus is kind of, he's eating a granola bar on the front. It's kind of like, he's, uh, if you have this picture, he's creepy calm. Have you, you ever known anybody like that? Like everything's flying around in the middle of like a car accident. You've got that person that's just, they've, they've got it. They have no fear. That creepy calm. And the disciples then have moved. They're on the other side of the boat, kind of eagle-eyeing him from the side, they want nothing more in this moment than to get out of the boat because they want to get away from Jesus. They're rethinking the choices they've made in their lives. <laughs> Honest truth. It says that they're terrified. They are afraid of Jesus. It's still in the middle of the night, mind you, but the storm's abated. It's calm. They want to get out, and the boat, some of you know the story and where we're going. This is about to get real, by the way. This is, is going to be fun. Strap in. Put your seatbelt on. They, they don't dock. Uh, they push ashore. We're moving into chapter 5. They want nothing more. They love the sound of land. They want to kiss it. They want away from Jesus. It docks, pushes ashore. It's dark. But as their eyes adjust, they realize that they've moved from the storm, afraid of Jesus, into a graveyard in the middle of the night. Listen to this, chapter 5. So they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there was with him out of the, there met him out of the tombs. You have to be thinking at this point, is this what it's going to be like every day with Jesus? <laughs> yes. So we're flipping the script. Came out of the tombs. I don't care who it is or what it is. It's the out of the tombs at this point. A man with an unclean spirit. We're, we're about to describe this man. He'd been living among the tombs, but no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he, get the picture, he wrenched the chains apart. He had some weird strength. 
and broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him, but apparently people had tried. Night, listen to this, night, verse 5, night and day amongst the tombs on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Okay, get the picture. Boat pushes ashore, eyes adjusting. They see tombstones. This is creepy. And what do they hear? Ah! Uh, I don't want to get too loud and freak the kids out. Ah! Uh, can you feel it? Let let just let it wash over you, like that cold shiver that I get every time I go into the, the big building at the top of the hill. The, we, we call it the creepy building. And a bat. And you feel that all the life kind of leaves. It's like one storm. Now, Jesus, now. But we're not done yet. Okay? Later in the story, later in the story, it says that Jesus, somebody, spoiler alert, Jesus heals the guy. Gets the demons out of him. It says that when they find him with the demon-possessed man, he is sitting with Jesus clothed and in his right mind. Not his left mind, his right mind. Clothed. So before all this happens, what is he? He's naked. My wife tells me not to say naked in my sermon, so he's naked. That's acceptable. He had, look, he didn't have product, hadn't taken a shower in a while, hadn't shaved, so he is the hairy, naked, crazy man. And by the way, the worst neighbor ever. Apparently, they had, uh, the HOA voted and got him out of the neighborhood because apparently it's bad enough that he was naked mowing his lawn. Uh, the Harry was just, you know, that's whatever. That's organic. But crying out night and day. I think that's what did it. I mean, we could do, we could take everything else, but night and day waking up. So there he is again. Ah! So they vote him out, put him in the graveyard and assign in rotation or short straw who's going to be the next one to go out and try and chain him again. Now, it's the superhuman strength is the one thing, but the naked hairy guy that, okay, it's my turn. I'm going to go out and I don't know where to grab. That guy's running at the disciples. Imagine how they feel. Everything, every instinct in my body is to run away. I don't want to go. Do I want to go back because back was scary? I don't want to go forward. They're frozen. What is Jesus doing? He's comfortable with the storm. Your second word is he's confident in the midst of chaos. Look at his posture because this will flip your script. Early in the story, he's confident. It says Jesus is standing there and the demon-possessed man, I'll let you go back and read it, is running at, running, screaming. Ah. Jesus is standing. His posture is confident. 
disciples back there. All of a sudden, they're cool with him again. <laughs> and hairy naked crazy man face plants in front of Jesus and read it begging him. Do, this is weird things happen. Begging him, don't torment us. They don't ask, but the question emerges again, who is this? I mean, the demon knows something. We find out that it's a legion, a whole army of demons that have taken over this guy. He's in bad shape. Who is this? And that's the question. Let's hang on that for just a second. Who is this? I mean, we know Jesus, the baby that grows to be a man that goes and dies on the cross, but there, apparently there's more to this, and there absolutely is. Did you know that this wasn't the story of the Gospels? wasn't the first time that Jesus came to this earth. Through the Old Testament, and I'll give you something to double-click on, almost all the time, when, it, when the Old Testament says that the angel of the Lord did this or that, the word angel is messenger, and the angel of the Lord theologically is Jesus. It's the second person of the Godhead. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is Jesus. So when the angel of the Lord shows up, you say, oh, that's, that's part of the Godhead who then comes as a baby, lives and dies for our sins. But the angel of the Lord in the, in the Old Testament almost all the time comes leading a host of angels to make war against the demonic forces. Mind blown. Jesus historically through the Old Testament, was a warrior riding on his horse, stomping out the enemies of God, protecting his people. So demon-possessed man running up, the disciples have the creeping fear. The demon, though, as he approaches Jesus, has that same, whoo, I wish I had known who I was running at and realizes it in that moment begins to beg because the rumors about Jesus are he's a pretty powerful figure. But you see the, part, see the Lord who is at your side. See his face with the disciples. Let it emerge. He is the warrior. And he's confident. The most important thing that happens, I think, in the story, or what will change the way we read the story, happens right at the end. After Jesus heals the demon-possessed man, the whole community wants Jesus to leave. Notice this is the second time that this happens. The disciples are scared of him. I said, I think there's a lesson in this. The disciples are scared of him. He shows his power. They're scared of him. Jesus heals the demon-possessed man, and the community is like, leave. Depart from me. We expect that when God reveals, shows his power, that everybody's going to flock to him, but there's also something in our soul that's afraid. But Jesus invokes, provokes fear. As Jesus says in verse 19, Verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been, been possessed 
with demons begged that he might go with him. But Jesus said no and sent him back. I'm going to flip this for us. The disciples, when they began to follow Jesus, had this expectation that it was all going to be peaches and cream. But they find out it's going to be storms and darkness. That Jesus is going to lead them into the scariest things that they could ever imagine. That's what following Jesus is going to be like. Jesus heals the demon-possessed man. He's sitting there having a cup of tea with him, now clothed and in his right mind. This guy thinks that that's what following Jesus is going to be like. Tea time every day. I'm hanging, sipping, talking. He's making me feel so good. This is the safe place. And Jesus responds, responds to him. He's going to be with him. But he responds by saying, no, you can't come with me. I'm sending you back into the chaos. I'm sending you back to the very people that chained you, to the HOA <laughs> that voted you out. I'm sending you back into the storm. This changes how we, how we relate to the story. Because often when we talk about the storms and the demon-possessed man, we uh, center almost exclusively on the fact that if you have storms going on in your life, God can calm those storms. Isn't that sweet? That's wonderful. That if uh, you have internal battles, Jesus can deal with those internal battles. The point of the story is not to stop at what Jesus can do for you, but for us to hear the challenge and the call and the commission of Jesus to, if he has calmed your storms, if he has Cast out your demons. He now is sending you back to tell the story. Here's this. When I think back to the pilot who ascended and ascended and ascended and had this calmness and confidence in his voice, that I'm sure if it was in a tailspin crashing to the ground, he would still sound calm because they teach him to do that. They're big, they're manipulators. <laughs> but had that calmness and that confidence because, because this was not his first rodeo. I'd never done it before. But he knew from experience that this is how you get to calm skies. Knew that the bolts would hold the plane together. Knew how to navigate the storm. Listen to this. That is why Jesus sent the demoniac back. Because now he knows. He's experienced who Jesus is, his full power, and what he wants to do. He knows the way. And so do you. So do you. Every, every instinct in our body is to think that darkness is bad, that the storms are terrifying, and that I should duck and cover or run away. But the challenge of Jesus is for us to draw on our experience with him and become, here's your mission, become navigators to a world 
that needs someone to show them the way. To become revelators to a world that desperately needs to see Jesus. They don't just need bad junk to go away, but to see him in the flesh with us. Over the past few years, the church has made the church, Christians, we, we've kind of been ridiculous, to be honest. I listen to us talk, and, I, and, me, and me too. I fall into this. You'll hear people moaning and whining. I mean, there's never, honestly, churches has whined a lot. Christians have whined a lot. And what we normally say is, ah, oh, man, I'll tell you what, an election or a disease or whatever else, we'll say, things have never been as bad as they are right now. These are dark, dark times. All of our freedoms are about to get taken away. We've only got five years left, all that. We would say, oh, <laughs> And I, I, as I was reading this, I thought, we are such sissies. Like darkness, chaos. We, look, we don't look like the kinds of people that follow a Jesus, follow a Lord who yawned at the storm, who stood. That's kind of a karate thing who stood confidently in the face of the darkness. Might it be, like we say, something happens in the storm and in the face of this darkness that could not happen without it. Could it be that these aren't the worst times? They're the perfect time for God's people to rise up shine a light into the darkness? Could it be that a few years back when everybody pretended to be Christians, it was kind of gray and light just didn't seem all that bright? Could it be that the darker it gets, the brighter your light could be? That the more desperate our times, the greater the anticipation and effect of hope. And that the voice of those who know the way would be piercingly clear if we'd get off the couch, embrace it, draw on our experience with him, tell our communities, our workplaces, our children, I know the way. And... I've learned. You know, greater is he who, the, I'm going to give you two verses. First uh, John 4, 4, write these down, because I want you to pray over these later. First John 4, 4, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Greater. And that'll only mean something if he's been greater, if he's calmed be stood, if your faith has been materialized by experience, greater is he who is in me. 
Secondly, Jesus, after Peter realizes, this is later in the story, after Peter realizes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. How amazing, Jesus says. That's cool. I'm going to build my church on that. And I think one of the most misunderstood verses, statements in, in the whole Bible is, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. We read that as a defensive posture on the church. The gates of Hades, they're coming. We, we hear, we're behind the, this door and hell is banging and God says, it's okay, I'm going to get you through this. Banging and we're holding against the door. No, no, Jesus promised that hell's not going to be over to overtake me. That's not what he says there. Gates don't come against you. Who's, who's the... Who's the def- who has the defensive posture? This takes us back to the story. Who's scared of whom? The gates of hell won't stand. Who's the offender? Who's the aggressor? You are. The one who has the name of Jesus, the one who's followed Jesus, is the one who's rushing into the darkness, who's kicking in the gates of hell. That should change our posture when it comes to everything, when it comes to temptation. Oh, we're so kind of cowards. It's like, oh, this thing's coming. It's, it's been kicking me in the teeth. <sighs> that victim stands. Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're the aggressor. Take the bull by the horns, baby. Embrace it. Fight. Because greater is he who's in you than he is in the world. If you believe that, start kicking some doors in. That should change the way we embrace threats in our communities. So that's where the danger is. That's where the church should be. That's the hardest thing, the hardest person, the most difficult stance. The call is for Christians, because Jesus is greater is he who's in me, because he's the angel of the Lord. That we should be rushing into the darkness. That's what communion is about. Not tea time. Thank you, Jesus. This is so nice. I love the comfort. But story time. Imagine if, if we're moving really to a close here. Imagine how the disciples took communion. The Lord's Supper, when they got together, regaling one another about the stories of the weird, funny, crazy things. Do you remember when Jesus, that was crazy. I want you to feel jealous. Where are your stories? Where are my stories? I take the, the, the presence of Jesus in my life. Oh, man, I was such a sissy until I met Jesus. And he has <laughs> destroyed everything that I thought life was supposed to be about. What an adventure! The great things he has done, and greater things to come. In a moment, when we sing, we take communion. If you don't know Jesus, you. <laughs> All this may make you think, okay, I don't know. I really don't know if I want that. (laughs) Things are hard enough. (laughs) 
But if you don't know Jesus, we want to share the Jesus who will give you power to stand against the forces of darkness. We want to share him. See me after. As you take communion, peel it open, put the cracker to your mouth. Know that the presence of Jesus, that's a symbol of the presence of Jesus, and that Jesus wants to rock your world. Really, he wants you to have stories of the cup. When you take the cup, he has made promises that he wants to keep with you. And for those kept promises to materialize your faith, change your life. He wants to send you out into your world to tell the story. Can I hear amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as, as, we, as we process this story, it's amazing to me that the disciples uh, had this in the reservoir, in their, in their tank. They could feel the, the rain and the fear. And could then look back for the rest of their lives and know that you are the one who is able to do great things. I pray for us that we would want that so bad that we'd stay in the boat long enough for you to prove to us that you are great and you are good. Speak to our souls. Lead us, oh God. We pray. God's people say, you can stand on your feet.